You know those moments when you you sort of want to say, somebody pinch me, I can't believe this is actually happening? Those moments that you may have dreamed about, you may have, have thought about, you may have hoped for and wished for, but quite frankly, you never really thought it could ever happen. I, I grew up uh, loving baseball. I followed baseball all of my life. I could tell you every player on most every team as a child growing up. I, could, I, mean, I couldn't remember to do anything my mother asked me to do, but I could give you the batting averages of everybody who ever played, probably. I'll tell you all the World Series winners. I mean, I love baseball, I playing baseball, of watching baseball, of going to baseball games. And, you know, and, and I remember reading books when I was a child about what it was like to be the bat boy of a, of a baseball team and the story of that. And I thought to myself, that would be one of the most awesome things in the world to be able to do that. And on my 40th birthday... Cindy arranged with Bill Swanson, who was the batting practice pitcher for the Bisons, for us to, Buffalo Bisons, to go up there early and to, to go and, and be on the field for batting practice. Now, I, for, the, for about five days before that, I couldn't think of anything else but doing that. I mean, I, I was so excited. And we drove up there. We got in there. Bill took us into the clubhouse. He took us into the dugout. We sat in the dugout. We met some players. We met the coaches. And then the greatest thrill, we got to actually go out in the outfield and shag fly balls during batting practice. We're in this stadium, you know, there, and these guys are hitting fly balls. And I have to tell you, they hit those balls a lot higher and harder than I ever imagined before. I mean, balls are dropping behind me, in front of me, all over the place. But it was a, we had time for our lives. The boys were there. They were out with us there on second base. And, you know, the, a couple of players gave them some bats. I mean, it was days before that smile and the grin on my face was left. I mean, it was, I kept thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm actually experiencing this. It was amazing. And it was... You wish you had videos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was telling Bill this morning, I was going to tell the story. He goes, I remember looking over there and thinking, wow, this guy, how could anybody be that happy out here? And, you know, I, I, it, was, it was glorious. It's one of those moments you think it would never happen, and it does. And you feel like you're having a dream. And you have those moments too. It's probably not about baseball. It's about something else. Something that you never could have dreamed possible, but you're thinking about it. You're like, somebody, you know, am I dreaming? Is this real? And that's exactly what the writer of Psalm 126 is saying. When this psalm begins, the writer says, when the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. One of the translations says, we were like people who dreamed. Could this really be true? Could this really be happening? Now, the context of, of, that, of the, those feelings they have is that they had 70 years earlier gone into exile. They had rejected God. I was going to read for us First Chronicles 36, a fair amount of that passage, but I won't. But there's this whole long litany of the fact that how the people rebelled against God and the leaders rebelled against God. And God kept sending them prophets to, to bring them back and to draw them to him. And they kept ignoring them until finally God said, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And that is a life without me. And the king of Babylon comes and destroys the people, kills the people, he destroys the city, he t burns down the temple, the walls, everything, the city is everything in it is left desolate, and he takes the few of the people back to Babylon as captives. And other psalms say that we were in Babylon and we wept. 
We yearned for Jerusalem. And everything in them is about if we could only get back to Jerusalem. But it's a pipe dream. And yet God does it. Seventy years later, he brings them back. And in fact, the writer says, not only was it like a dream to us, but we were filled with laughter. We sang with joy. It was one of the most exciting moments of our lives. But even this, and the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. The other nations watched Israel being led out as slaves. They watched the city being destroyed. And they thought, these people have had it. They're done. And for God to bring them back is like nothing they have ever seen before. They are as amazed about it as the Israelites are. And they say, it is amazing what God has done for us. And they celebrate. And there's this great sense of joy among the people of Israel that God has done this amazing thing. You guys spoke, many of you shared today about what God has done in your life and ways in which you've seen God at work. And every time we do that, it brings joy to us because joy is always connected to gratitude. I've never yet in my life met anyone who was joyful and ungrateful. It's impossible. What makes us happy? What brings joy to us? It's recognizing, giving thanks for what has happened to us. And the people of Israel are saying, God has been so amazing, so good. We can't even begin to dream it. And yet we're experiencing it. Thank you, God. And in that gratitude, there is joy. But that's not the end of the psalm. When you read the psalms, often they are prayers. Many of the psalms are, are prayers, and, and, and there are lots of requests and lo- asking God to do lots of things. In this psalm, there's just one prayer. There's just one request. At the beginning of verse 4, the, the psalmist says, Restore our fortunes, Lord. There are a ver- variety of translations of that passage. Some of them say, Bring back our captives. And, and I've been wrestling with what exactly that means. They've already given thanks to God for bringing them back for releasing them from captivity, for setting them free, for rescuing them. So now what are they asking? And something in my mind is wondering, are they now saying, Lord, you rescued us, you brought us back, and we have failed once again. So restore us anew. Now, if that's the case, we all can, rec- we all can relate to that. We all know the experience of God doing something phenomenal for us, of setting us free from something, of sensing his forgiveness, and then finding ourselves right back in the place where we need to come to him and ask again. We've all experienced that. But I wonder if there isn't something deeper going on than that. Uh, It strikes me that perhaps what the psalmist is saying is that, Lord, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for doing what you've done. Now, now that we've arrived in Jerusalem, make us your people. Do something more. We don't, we want more of you. We want deeper things with you. We want to experience intimacy with people. We want to get back to what it means to be your people. We want to know not just the joy of being rescued. We want to know the joy of being restored. The joy of experiencing intimacy with you and life with you. 
And I think there is, this is really, I think, an idea of the kingdom. That we tend to think very minimalistic thoughts about what God does. We are often so satisfied with the fact that God has forgiven us and he set us free. When in reality, God wants to take us to deeper places. Because joy, deeper joy is found in the deeper places. A few months ago, a month or so ago, the eyes of the world were focused on the northern part of Thailand. As we watched that story unfold of the boys' soccer team trapped in a cave. And, and as you know, they were talking for a while, it was going to be months before they got out. And then they discovered that there were problems and they were going to need to expedite that rescue. And if you're like me, we were watching, we are paying attention, and, and people were cheering as, you know, they brought out the first a few boys at a time, and then they had to get things ready again, and they bring out a few more hours later, and then they had to wait till the next day. And, and there was cheering every time a group came out. But the, the real celebration came when the last players and the coach, who was the last one out, finally made it out, and everyone was safe. And, and they took him to the hospital. They checked him out. Amazingly, they were in fairly good health considering their experience. And I remember watching the video of the coverage of the, these boys and the coach leaving the hospital and climbing into vans to take them to their homes and wherever else they were going to go. And people were around them. They were cheering them. They were trying to hold back. They were so excited about what was happening. And, and I thought to myself... It's awesome that these boys have been rescued. It's, it's vital. But now, what are they going to do with their lives? What happens now? Is their only identity going to be, we were rescued from a cave, and sort of live off that the rest of their lives? Or are they going to say, we were rescued from a cave. We need to have significance for our lives. John Wesley, who was uh, the founder of our movement and other many others, was uh, his father was the was the uh, the, the rector of, of the church in Epworth, and the parishioners of the church weren't real fond of him. And uh, there is a there is a story that uh, some of them tried they did they burned down the parsonage, the rectory of the church, and it was on fire. And uh, they all got out except for John Wesley. And John was stuck in a room, and they, finally a, a courageous firefighter climbed up the ladder and rescued him just before. The house collapsed. And Wesley's mother told him the rest of his life, you were a brand plucked from the burning. God rescued you for a purpose. And as Wesley got older, he loved to talk about that. And he loved to say, I'm a brand plucked from the burning. That God has a purpose for my life. And it's not just that I was rescued from a fire. Thank God for that. But it's that God wants to do more things with my life. And I think that's part of what the psalmist is saying. God is not about, the. God is never a minimalist. God is always looking to take us deeper, take us farther to move us closer to Him. To move us into the deeper things of life with Him. Because that's where the ultimate joy is found. The closer we are to Him, the closer we are to the source of joy. 
And when you come to the, when you move on through the rest of these verses, it is in essence a sense of the psalmist saying and the people saying as they sing this song marching into Jerusalem, God, thank you for what you've done. Now take us to deeper places and we believe you're going to do it. When you read beginning in verse 4, and he says, Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. I think the psalmist is giving us two pictures of what it looks like to go to those deeper places, to be restored. One of them is streams in the desert or streams in the Negev. The Negev is the desert area of Judah. The word Negev, dry, means dry, barren. And it is a dry, barren place. Nothing of any significance grows there as it doesn't in deserts. But there are times when the rains come and they come so forcefully and so powerfully and so much that it creates streams that run through this desert. And, and amazingly, within a day or two, after the rains have come and the streams have developed, there's actually foliage that begins to grow and flowers begin to come up right there in the desert because the stream has run through it. And there are times when God's work in our lives is immediate like that. There are times where we have these experiences with God that are deeper with him, that are in the moment and in the immediate. In our tradition uh, and other traditions like ours, there, there is this talk about a, a second work of grace or the, the deeper life with Christ. And often people are talking about crisis experiences and I think God brings those to us sometimes. I have them in my own life. Moments when God put his finger on something in my heart and said, that is hurting you. That is keeping you from closeness with me. And we need to deal with that. And the moment that I let God deal with that, I was flooded with joy immediately. And there are these mile markers I can look back, these signposts to say, those were significant moments when God did something in my life. But sometimes we get so interested in the moments, we begin to worship the moments instead of the God who brings them. And I think the psalmist is also telling us, yes, there are those moments where you get streams in the desert and stuff pops up immediately. But I also think that the majority of the time, this, this movement to the deeper things of God is more of a journey than it is a moment. The writer talks about sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting. That takes time. I'm not a very patient farmer. You know, I want to plant seeds and the next day I'm out looking around seeing where's the stuff. But if you know much about farming, you plant the seeds and it takes time to grow. Planting and and and. Harvesting and sowing and reaping is a common metaphor that we find throughout the scriptures because it's the way of the journey of, the, of life with Christ. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes time because we often aren't ready for what God wants to do in us. It takes time because God wants to teach us things and work in us. We read earlier from Romans chapter 6 where he talked about how it, it produces, eventually perseverance produces character and produces hope. And it's that process 
that we need to walk through. And you will notice that the writer of the psalm says that they, they plant in tears and they weep as they go to plant. Seems an odd thing to do. I don't know that I've ever seen a farmer out crying, planting seed. But there is something about living an agrarian life that creates an atmosphere of stress and worry. We have a little garden in our backyard. Last year, it did pretty well. First, time, first year. This year, I think I put too much fertilizer or something on it because nothing came up. Except it's starting to come up a little bit now. We're getting some, I think, at the end of the garden where I didn't put as much of that in there. But, you know, we looked at it and went, well, it didn't come up this year. Okay, what are you going to do? We'll buy things at the farmer's market instead. But if what you plant and harvest is your livelihood, that's a whole different thing. If what you plant and harvest is, is the difference between having or not having food on your table or being able to pay your bills, that's a completely different thing. And when and we lived for a couple of years in our first pastorate, right in smack dab in the middle of a farming area in southwestern Wisconsin. Everyone around us was related to the farming and dairy industry. And I began to understand a bit more of, of what it's like to be a farmer when you're looking out at the field and you're thinking, is there going to be enough rain or too much rain? Enough sun, too much sun. Insects, blight, all these things that could make what you've done go wrong and severely affect your livelihood. And there is a sense of that in our walk with Christ. Is that sometimes I'm not sure we take it as seriously as we should. We look out at the garden and say, well, it didn't grow, whatever. It's not all that important to me. And the psalmist is saying it ought to be. Because this is about not this is about your relationship with God. This is the journey to joy. And and in the midst of that, there is this sense of trusting in God's promises that when we plant, God brings a harvest. And when we sow, God allows us to reap. And it's not always that we harvest and reap the things that we think we're going to get. But God knows better. And what we do know is the psalmist says, what we do harvest, what we do reap is joy. Because the very act of planting is an act of trust. And joy is connected to trusting God. Do we believe enough to plant? Do we believe enough? Do we trust God enough to do something about investing ourselves in this spiritual journey with him? No matter what we're going through, the curves, the turns, the ups and the downs, the struggles, the burdens, all the things we have to face, that in the end, God is going to bring us joy. But here's the thing. It's not just in the end. The scriptures tell us that it's through the journey too. There is a joy at the end that supersedes all the other joys, but there is joy in the journey as well because every step along the way, every step of trust we take, every step of faith we take is opening our hearts a little bit more to the presence of the one who is the source of joy. And that's why Israel can celebrate not only what God has done, but the promise of what God is going to do. And they celebrate and rejoice in him. 
And we do that because we believe that God is abundantly gracious. That God is good. That God loves to rescue. While the other nations around Israel were stunned that God would bring them back, Israel wasn't really that stunned because God's been doing that all of their existence. This is who God is. This is what God does. Because God is good and gracious and merciful. It's his nature. It's his character. It's the very essence of who he is. He wants us to be people who experience his joy in the depths of our being. Because our hearts are open to him who is the source of joy. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who think and act and live like God. Because he is the source of joy and life. And that's what Jesus means when he says, I came to give you not just life, but abundant life. Life to the fullest. This is the very essence of who God is. And this is how God created us and has always been his intent. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than at this table. At this table, we are reminded of everything God has done for us in Christ. And we are given hope for what God is doing in the moment and what God is going to do in the future. As we come to this table this morning, we come in gratitude and thanksgiving, and we come in hope and faith, And we come in expectation as the people of God whom God has created us to be filled with joy. Holy Father, we thank you for all that you have done and for all that you are going to do. We thank you that you want more for us than we even want for ourselves. May it be so. Father, pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup of which we partake today. May it be food for our souls that floods our hearts, our minds, every part of our being with your joy, with the essence of who you are. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.